I want to think about this passage um, and I want to pray first by asking the Lord uh, to help me as I uh, seek to uh, minister from his word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and redeemer. I want us to consider this um, request on the part of uh, the brothers of Ze uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And sometimes uh, in preaching you can get away uh, by neglecting uh, the context uh, of a Bible passage, but not in this case. Um, Mark has placed this request uh, immediately following uh, a prediction that our Lord makes about what is going to take place in Jerusalem. Immediately after Christ's predictions of his sufferings and death, and moreover, this is now the third time that he has told his disciples plainly, clearly, that he's going up to Jerusalem where he will be killed and after three days rise again. Uh, the first time was um, on the road to Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8. Um, remember Jesus says, to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with this uh, magnificent uh, statement, uh, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Mark tells us in his gospel that uh, at, from that point onwards, uh, he begins to spell out plainly what kind of a Messiah he's going to be. And, and Peter misunderstands completely, and Peter rebukes him, um, tries to turn him from the Father's will, and receives uh, a most severe rebuke uh, in response, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. And then he goes on, or Christ goes on to explain um, what it means to follow him. And he says, well, there's not just a cross for me, there's going to be a cross for you. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny self, and follow me. And Luke, in the parallel passage, uh, puts it uh, even more strongly. Luke makes it uh, a non-negotiable. Um, <clears throat> if you want a crown, there is a cross first. Anyone who does not take up his cross cannot be my disciple. Uh, if a person wants to save his life, then he'll lose it. But if a person loses their life for Christ's sake and for the gospel, uh, the promise is that they will find it. That's the first prediction, uh, followed by misunderstanding. Uh, <clears throat> the second one uh, takes place in Mark chapter 9, uh, in, in verse 30. And again, Jesus tells his disciples clearly, uh, that he's going to suffer and be killed and rise again uh, when he gets to Jerusalem. And again, the disciples uh, misunderstand and they fall into a discussion about uh, who is going to be the greatest. And uh, Jesus asked them, uh, what were you discussing on the road? And uh, they fessed up and said, well, we were discussing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus responds with that teaching, you know, anyone who wants to be first must be last of all and servant 
of all. And then now here, a third time, the same pattern uh, is emerging. A third time, and if you line up the three predictions in parallel columns, uh, this one is the most detailed of all of the prophecies that Christ makes about what will happen in the future. But the pattern is the same. Uh, the pattern is that the prediction of sufferings, a failure to hear, misunderstanding uh, and rejection of it. Uh, music is nothing if the audience is deaf, and certainly the disciples were deaf to the music of, of Christ's words. I was reminded um, of the lyrics of a song, it's a favourite of mine, uh, you probably, most of you won't remember it, but uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel was one of their classic albums. Uh, and on the album there's a, a song called The Boxer. And one of the lyrics goes uh, something like, A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That was the case with these disciples. The human brain does not enjoy information that spoils its pleasures or makes life uh, more difficult or threatens uh, our well-being. We kind of filter it out. Uh, we we, we uh, selectively hear what we want to hear and disregard the rest. People today talk about being triggered and, and what they mean is uh, they don't want to hear something, uh, some piece of content that threatens their emotional and mental uh, well-being. Uh, lecturers in some universities are required to issue trigger warnings uh, to their students uh, lest uh, the information conveyed um, triggers some kind of panic attack or, or trauma. Uh, it's interesting that uh, recent research on this is actually uh, beginning to show that uh, trigger warnings actually create more anxiety uh, uh, rather than less. Uh, there was an article I was reading of uh, some research uh, published in 2021 recently. But what does this repeated pattern tell us about the demands of discipleship? Well, this repeated failure uh, must alert us at the very least to the fact that Christian discipleship, uh, cross-bearing, is not something that comes easily. It's not that these first disciples were somehow different from us. Uh, the gospel writers don't repeat themselves for no reason. Uh, this is for our instruction and it tells us that if, if the disciples in the beginning did not find following a crucified saviour easy, neither will we. Uh, <clears throat> we will struggle with this aspect of the Christian life. Uh, I remember reading a kind of a tongue-in-cheek ad. I think it appeared in Christian or New Life newspaper. Not sure whether it's still even going, but uh, years ago. Uh, and it, in, it was in the for sale column, and it read this. For sale, one cross, almost new, top heavy, cramps my style when keeping up with the world. Uh, one talent, slightly shelf-worn, unused for several years. For sale, one, one bundle of seldom used opportunities in service, prayer and Bible study. These items may be viewed at any time on the corner of Careless Avenue and Neglect Street, signed Indifferent Disciple. Well, I've got three 
three points from the passage. Uh, I'm looking at verses 35 to 45 uh, uh, here. And uh, the three lessons are a lesson in asking the Lord for things, uh, a lesson in leadership, and a lesson of our Saviour himself. Uh, so the first one uh, to verse 40 uh, is a lesson in asking the Lord for things. If you like, uh, a lesson in petitioning the Lord, a lesson uh, in prayer. And the response of James and John when they heard that the Messiah was going to rise again, they uh, took it to mean that this kingdom, which our Lord was going to, to reign in, uh, was going to appear almost immediately. It was just around the corner. And they concluded that uh, the kingdom of God, uh, dawning, God would come to his people, uh, he would vindicate the righteous, and he would judge the wicked, and how the, the sons of thunder would just love uh, that to happen. Uh, and so this was an opportune time uh, to get in and to make sure that they reserved for themselves um, high positions, in fact the very highest position, uh, to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the king. These were positions of honour and authority. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know where Peter was at this uh, particular point in time. Um, you know, he was part of the inner circle of disciples. Peter, James and John, Jesus would take with him on special occasions. He would take um, them when he raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. He would take them up uh, when he was transfigured uh, on the mountaintop. Um, maybe they thought that they had to get in before Peter. Maybe they were thinking, you know, he's a bit, he's not really up to it, a bit of a poser jumping over the side of the boat in the midst of the storm on the Lake of Galilee and nearly drowning as a result. The kingdom needs better men than him. And so we'll get in first. And, and so that's what they do. They come and put forward their request. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, in the parallel account in Matthew 20, the request comes through their ambitious mother, Salome. Uh, but it amounts to the same thing. There must have been family uh, collusion. And I was struck um, by the similarity between uh, what happens in this account and the one that immediately follows on afterwards. Uh, the, the comparison between the request of James and John with uh, Christ's response and uh, the request of blind Bartimaeus at Jericho. And you'll notice if you compare verses 36 and 51, um, Jesus responds to the request with exactly the same question. What is it that you want me to do for you? Uh, a wonderful um, offer, isn't it? It's like carte blanche, um, a blank check, although we don't use checks anymore. Uh, what is it that you want me to do for you? Uh, but compare the pair. Uh, James, on the John, uh, James and John, on the one hand, uh, well instructed by our Lord himself, but functionally ignorant about the demands of discipleship. Bartimaeus, uh, as far as theology concerned, completely uninstructed, and yet functionally wise about discipleship. Bartimaeus asks for faith, the brothers ask for fame. 
And it's a reminder, isn't it, that it doesn't matter how articulate and well-taught we are in speaking uh, or preaching or in theology. Uh, after all, the devil can articulate the gospel better than anyone in this room. There has to be that link between the gospel and the life that is lived, between what we teach and preach and believe and the way that we live it out in daily existence. I like to think that our college in Box Hill turns out first-class candidates for ministry. Uh, but if you were to press me, I would also have to admit that there have been times when we've turned out first-class rotters, uh, academically competent. They knew their theology, but they disgraced the gospel in a very public way. I want you to notice two aspects about this petition. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Uh, first of all, that it's motivated by selfish ambition. Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but count others better than yourself. I don't think it's possible uh, to divest ourselves totally from selfish ambition. We continuously need uh, God's grace and mercy every day. Uh, all that is motivated by self is sin. Self-seeking in ministry, self-pity in trials, self-energy in service, self-defense in criticism. Uh, selfish ambition is going to be something that we all face. And it means that we've got to think about our motives and question them sometimes. Uh, one of the best books I've ever read on pastoral ministry, I read at the end of last year, uh, a book called, entitled the, the Portrait of Paul, uh, written by Rob Ventura and Jeremy Walker. And I was struck by something uh, they wrote uh, in that book uh, about our motivation. Uh, they, and I quote, write this way, uh, why do I do what I do? Why do I pray, prepare, preach, write, speak, work, visit? On what principle is my life organised? Are my efforts for me or for you? Am I truly working uh, for the church for which Christ gave his life? Self is a powerful idol and can bear a great deal in the hope of being exalted at last. It is even willing to give every appearance of humility in order that it might be lifted up. Here our selfish hearts lie grievously exposed. They can wear the mask of service in the pursuit of a throne of honour. Well, that request um, is rather uh, shamefacedly for James and John, uh, one that's motivated by selfish ambition. But it's also a request that's framed in ignorance, isn't it? As Jesus himself pointed out to the two, uh, Jesus responds to them, you do not know what you're asking. And the thunder, sons of thunder thought that highly unlikely. Um, so Jesus asked them the question, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptised with the baptism that I am to be baptised with them? And they respond, uh, we are able. I think that response has got to be in line for, you know, winning the prize, the worst ever prayer ever, you know, worst prayer ever prayed uh, in history. Uh, 
it's so divorced from reality. Uh, their whole outlook is so incompatible with the demands of genuine disciple. We are able. Well, Jesus was referring to the cross where he would drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath and be baptized and overwhelmed with the waters of God's wrath. And no one except him could uh, drink that cup or be baptized with that baptism. And yet Jesus assures them they, that they would indeed drink a cup and receive a baptism. And he uses the metaphors of, of water and wine to talk about um, <clears throat> what genuine discipleship will involve, um, the idea of suffering in his service, and instead of the earthly honours they were hoping for, they would suffer for his sake, as indeed all do who seek to live a godly life in Christ. Uh, induction services are a blessing. Believe me, I, I, I do think this. Uh, they're a joy. They're an encouragement in the, in the life of a church. But they are a reminder that they're also an induction into the Hall of Fame. Uh, the famous Hall of the Fellowship of Christ's Sufferings, Philippians 3. The Christian life has wonderful privileges and joys and solace, but inevitably there are going to be trials. And uh, James and John were the first and last of the apostolic band to, to give their lives in Christ's service. James was the first, uh, first of the martyrs of the apostles, uh, but not first of the martyrs. Um, if you read Acts chapter 12, you read that he uh, suffered martyrdom under uh, Herod Agrippa. And uh, John went on uh, to live a long life, but he died in lonely exile on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea under the rule of the emperor uh, Trajan. James and John uh, did drink that cup. Well, we need to be very careful what we ask for in prayer, don't we? Um, scripture reminds us that we don't know how to pray as we ought. Uh, God's agenda is not our agenda. We love that passage in Romans 8, 28. In everything God works for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. But we forget that the good that God works is not our comfort or our health or necessarily our prosperity. Uh, rather, it's Christ-likeness. Uh, John Newton um, and his friend William Cowper uh, put together a hymn book called Olney Hymns and they included uh, hymns that we still sing today like Amazing Grace and How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. But one of the hymns that is included in that hymn book published in 1779, it goes like this. Uh, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my goods and laid me low. 
Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. We don't always get what we ask for in prayer. Ask the Lord to fill you with his love and he may just point you to that person who really irritates you and you find hard to love. Or if you ask the Lord for patience, he may just point you to that person who really gets under your skin. Or if you ask the Lord for long-suffering, he'll give you someone to suffer long. Um, he's given you everything you wanted. Sorry, he's given you nothing you wanted. That was your prayer. But in fact, he's given you everything you need. Uh, he's answered your prayer. James and John didn't know what they were praying for and if truth be told, neither do we most of the time. But our Lord's purpose is to set us free from the James and John disease, to set us free from the sin of self and pride, to break our schemes of earthly ease. His intention is our good, not worldly honours or comforts. So be careful what you ask for in prayer. You might just, you might just get it. And just as a proscript to, <clears throat> to this section, I was doing some more work on it. I have preached on this passage before, a long time ago. And <clears throat> but as I was um, thinking through it, I think there may be some irony intended here on the part of the Gospel writer. Because the, and Mark is, is out of all the documents in the New Testament, uh, Mark is the writer that includes most irony. Uh, because the only other time the right hand and the left hand is used in uh, this gospel is in relation to Calvary. When Christ was enthroned on the cross, uh, there were two, one at his right hand and one at his left. So is Mark hinting that the full significance of their request will be seen uh, at Calvary in crucifixion? I think he might well be pointing this. Uh, in that direction. So there's a, a lesson here uh, in prayer. Uh, secondly, uh, more briefly, there's a lesson too in leadership. Uh, verses 41 to 44. The other disciples hear what's happened. Uh, they're outraged, morally outraged, but I think actually a little uh, put out because uh, the two brothers had got in uh, before they did and their plans had been uh, set back. So Jesus uh, responds by teaching about leadership in his kingdom and he points to a bad example first and then he points to a good example. <clears throat> first of all, he tells us what leadership in his kingdom is not to be like and he says in verse 42, uh, you know that those who are supposed to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So in society, in the Gentile world, um, leadership means the exercise of authority. And it's this Gentile virus that kind of uh, infects our thinking. Uh, it's not hard to find examples in the church of the Gentile virus. Uh, we see it in part 
in the numerous scandals involving celebrated and the not so celebrated uh, church leaders uh, using their authority, using their position, using their power uh, to engage in sexual and financial uh, emotional abuse uh, and still worse the attempts of those uh, around them to, to try to cover it all up. And um, <clears throat> the Gentile world has noticed this. Uh, the Gentile world has sat up and says, well, you're not much different from us. Uh, there's now a Gentile TV series about abuse of power in the church. It's been screened on the ABC. It's that uh, uh, drama series entitled Prosper. Prosper, uh, an allusion to the prosperity gospel. And Richard Roxburgh and Rebecca Givney have pastoral leadership in this megachurch. And, of course, it's inspired by a well-known megachurch uh, here in Australia. Someone once said that nearly all men can handle adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Uh, churches don't need power-wielding, managerial-style CEOs. Uh, they need compassionate shepherds who will tend <coughs> helpless and harassed sheep. They need shepherds who will uh, seek out that one lost sheep instead of <clears throat> tending to the 99 and <clears throat> exhorting them to tithe more to meet the church budget. Uh, one of the, uh, a couple of the ordination vows, I think, I had a quick look at this service, uh, but in, in the sort of uh, the vows that are taken tonight, uh, one of them is, do you accept this call and promise through grace to perform all the duties of a faithful minister of the gospel amongst this people. Um, and the second one that follows it is, uh, do you promise to give conscientious attendance upon the courts of this church and direct your best attendance to the business thereof and doing all in the spirit of brotherly kindness and so on. And if I can direct my comments to those in uh, ministerial positions, <clears throat> from time to time uh, you will be asked to take on positions of, of responsibility, of office, of duty in the denomination, and perhaps even uh, parachurch organisations, Christian organisations, missionary societies. Uh, perhaps you'll be asked to take on the convenership uh, of a committee, perhaps to sit on the executive committee uh, of some organization or to sit on a prestigious school council. Uh, most of these positions have little in the way of <clears throat> status except within the church. Some have a little bit of status uh, in a wider sphere. Or perhaps you'll be asked to be a speaker at a, a well-known Christian uh, convention. And to be asked is an honor. Uh, to be asked flatters the ego and to accept will undoubtedly enhance the power of your reputation. Accepting will give you a standing so that people will increasingly defer to your opinion and seek out your counsel. And invitations will start to come in from vacant churches looking for a pastor to fill uh, their pulpit. Now the last thing that I'm trying to say tonight is that you should not accept such invitations. But what I am saying is that the very first thing you must do is 
make sure you go and seek out the Lord in earnest prayer about them. Ask yourself, will this take me away from my primary uh, calling to pastor the flock of God in the place where he has appointed me? This is the vow that is taken tonight. The other vow only attends, uh, on the other vow only asks that you give conscientious attendance on the church courts and to do so in a spirit of brotherly kindness. Ask yourself what weighs most heavily in my thinking when these invitations come. Is it the honour? Is it the enhancement of my reputation? Is it the fame? Or is it the service that I can render to Christ and his church? What's the attraction? What's the pull? And if, you th if you're thinking primarily of the enhancement of your reputation, decline the invitation. It will do you no good, believe me, and it will do your church no good. And uh, don't pay too much attention to the council of friends. They want the best for you, of course they do. Uh, that will sway them. They will nearly always say, accept, you know, go for it. Rather, listen to your own heart and be guided by God, and he will guide if you seek him. So Jesus points out this bad pattern in the Gentile world, and it's a pattern that comes into consideration every time a person is given a, a position of responsibility or authority. It's a test of faith. But secondly, um, Jesus gives a good example of leadership and says, but whoever would be great amongst you must become your servant. Uh, Leonard Bernstein was an American orchestra conductor considered to be one of the most important of his day. Uh, interviewed after one of his concerts, a reporter asked him, Mr. Bernstein, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he replied without hesitation, second violin. He says, I can get plenty of first violinists but to find someone who plays second violin with the same enthusiasm, that's a real problem. I use that illustration because one of the key characteristics of the servant, whoever must be great amongst you must be a servant. And this is something that our Lord himself uh, highlighted uh, in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 17, verse 7. Uh, uh, to be a servant is to accept that some or even most of your work will go unnoticed and unthanked. Uh, in Luke 17, Jesus speaking about servants, he says this, uh, Will any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping a sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Answer, no, he doesn't. Uh, Ruth Culkin is a, a Christian who wrote a poem entitled, I Wonder. And it goes like this. It's about Christian service in, in church. And she writes this. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a women's group. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, 
if you pointed me to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old lady day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. And it's, this, it's those last words, isn't it? Nobody saw and nobody knew. That's the test of a servant. I don't think James and John were asking for that when they wanted these positions at the right and at the left. Now, of course, pastoral work uh, does involve being seen. It goes with the office. It, it can't be avoided. At some point, you're going to have to stand up and be seen. Uh, conducting Sunday worship is one example. But when you do stand up, with it will come, in our media-savvy age, and increasingly so in our media-savvy age, uh, along with it will come praise and criticism. How are you going to handle praise and criticism? Uh, someone has said that every pastor needs a blind eye and a deaf ear. Um, <clears throat> so that when people salute you, you only see half of it. And when people applaud you, you only hear half of it. Uh, praise, I think, is quite dangerous. Um, Jesus said at one point um, about praise, he says, Beware when all men speak well of you, for so the fathers did uh, of the false prophets. Um, <clears throat> if everybody speaks well of you, <laughs> it's worth thinking through what is it that I am actually saying from the pulpit, Sunday by Sunday. Uh, criticism, I think uh, we find, even though uh, praise is more dangerous, I think criticism is, is probably harder to take. But with, um, with, the, uh, with the office will come criticism. Both, I think, is part of cross-bearing, both part of uh, that go with the office. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has some advice. He says, the Lord uses our critics to show us our hearts, even if what they say is not fully true, informed or even fair. Uh, why? Well, because there's nearly always a germ of truth uh, in the criticism if we're willing to stop and to try to find it. Uh, Proverbs 15 verse 31 uh, says, if you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home amongst the wise. Well, uh, that wasn't for James and John. Uh, but the servant is willing to relinquish that. And then, lastly and briefly, uh, a lesson about himself, verse 45. This verse is sometimes taken to be the, the theme verse of the whole gospel. Um, Jesus says, pointing to himself as the great servant, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and what struck me about this verse is the very first word in the original that's translated uh, in our language in second position, the word even. It's been used as an ad uh, adverb and it's used to strike a, a note of discord in our ears for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's easy to miss, but it, it's, a, it's a word that points to something that should be, for us, surprising. So what do we know about this Son of Man figure? Son of Man title was the one that Jesus used most often of himself. Uh, what do we know of the Son of Man? Well, we, we've met him in the Old Testament. We've met him in one of the prophets. Uh, you find the Son of Man figure in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. 
And uh, this figure is a glorious figure. Um, he is both an earthly figure and a heavenly figure. And he appears before the ancient days uh, to mediate a kingdom on behalf of the saints of the Most High. Uh, and he's exalted and he's triumphant and he's given so much power and authority uh, that it says that all the nations serve him. So what's the, the surprising element here? Why the even? Well, Jesus here joins together this glorious Son of Man figure with another figure that you find in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in particularly in Isaiah 53. The, 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 the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who gives his life as a ransom for many. And uh, Jesus joins these together and he calls us uh, to follow him. Uh, and if our Lord draws our attention to this as a surprising thing, uh, you can be certain that <clears throat> it, will, it should be a surprise to us that Christian leadership is going to be like this. It's going to be humble service. I, I thought to give this uh, sermon a, a title, How to Be the World's Greatest Pastor, uh, but I decided it was a bit too racy. But the key <laughs> lesson uh, is that greatness in God's kingdom lies in service. The true disciple learns from the master by serving. It's a paradox. The way up is the way down. And the world will never understand it, but it's the mindset of a true disciple and leader. Uh, who is the world's greatest pastor? Well, he, he has a name. He has a name which is above every name. He has a name which one day in the future, every knee will bow before him. And his name is Jesus. And he's set the benchmark as it were, for all who follow in his footsteps. No one more gentle or compassionate, and yet he combined that with zeal to do the Father's will. Uh, no one spoke like this man. He spoke with authority, as we were reminded from the sermon uh, this morning by Joel. And yet he was a friend of sinners. He was an opponent of hypocrites. Children were happy around him, and yet he could make uh, a whip of cords and drive out the money changers from the temple. He was loathed by the religious establishment and yet loved by his disciples. Thousands hung upon his every word and yet at the end he died forsaken. And those who follow him will share in his life, although always imperfectly. Uh, he is the example and the pattern, not just for those who were inducting into office tonight, but every disciple. Uh, we're called not for honour, but for labour, not for applause, but for activity, and not for seniority, not for authority, but for service and for servanthood. Amen.